I'd invite you to open your Bibles, if you brought one uh, with you, to Exodus chapter 12. It's where we'll be spending most of our time. If you didn't bring a Bible but have it on a device, feel free to uh, turn in your device to there. And while we're getting settled into there, I just want to make a quick mention. Uh, You received a little card and you have the last couple weeks of our um, Good Friday and Easter service coming up. Uh, Easter is still one of those times of year where people who aren't in the normal rhythm of attending a worship gathering or even being part of a worship or uh, of a faith family um, will come uh, come to a service at some point. And I would encourage you to invite maybe your people of peace, uh, friends at work or neighbors um, to come with you on Easter uh, or on Good Friday. So Good Friday is, um, we started having a Good Friday service about four years ago. And um, uh, it's been a very uh, unique thing for us. It's been, a, it's been a great rhythm to add to our um, schedules. And if you haven't been, I hope you'll be a part um, of that. On the night um, that Jesus was to be betrayed, uh, the night of the Passover, Jesus gathered with his disciples in the upper room to observe and celebrate the Passover meal just as uh, the Hebrew people had done for the past 1,400 years. The scenes, the taste, the smells, all would have been quite nostalgic, uh, but also quite somber. Many of the Jews today still celebrate this uh, Seder meal. Seder just means in an order of. You might think of it as like a uh, liturgy of of dinner experience kind of thing. And it's adapted and changed over time. It doesn't look exactly today as it did then. But a lot of the same components on the table sat in front of of them would have been some bitter herbs to remind them of of their slavery, of of their ancestors once suffered for nearly 400 years. The Israelites had been oppressed, serving as slaves to the Egyptians. There would have been a small dish of uh, crushed nuts with a little cinnamon. It made sort of a paste that you would put on the herbs, the bitter herbs, to remind them of the cruelty of their slavery, how they were ordered to make bricks without straw. There would be unleavened bread to signal the fact that they had left in a hurry and couldn't wait uh, for enough time for the dough to rise. And on and on we can go in the significance of each of them pregnant with meaning. Literally, we could have probably three or four sermons just on uh, the meaning behind these different components. The significance of each of them spoke of the deliverance from Egypt and to a greater deliverance that would one day come from the Messiah. This meal had been, again, as I said, part of their tradition for 1,400 years. Now, we understand tradition in part, right? Maybe not to this level, but we can identify in part the songs we sing at Christmas, the eggs we hide at Easter, all the phenomenal food we eat at Thanksgiving, followed by a nap and maybe some football. We get that at some level, but our earliest Thanksgiving was a few hundred years ago. Think about 1,400 years of eating the same thing and the same stories and the same questions, all loaded with meaning. This all started... In the text that we're going to focus on today in Exodus chapter 12, focused on the Passover. To catch you up, God is in the process of delivering his people from slavery in Egypt, and he's using Moses and his brother Aaron as his mouthpiece. Pharaoh, who is Egypt's leader, refuses to comply. We refer to the Passover sometimes as the 10th plague, 
this wonder that God worked, and we walked through the other nine two weeks ago, how each plague progressively got worse, culminating with this final one, the Passover. And I want to read this from the text today, and I know you probably just got comfortable. I'm going to ask you to stand. As we read the first 14 verses of Exodus chapter 12, the word of God reads, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood. And put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted with its head and its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall, befall you or destroy you. When I strike the land of Egypt, you may be seated. This is the word of the Lord. It doesn't take long into this passage for you to realize that this passage can be um, troubling. And we can often try to soften the horror by pointing out the important contextual factors, and we'll certainly do so. The repeated warnings that had come. The way the deaths of the Egyptian sons echo the deaths of the Israelite ones earlier in, uh, in the book. The fact that the firstborn sons represented the strength and future destiny of the ancient family. How the oppression of Israel as God's firstborn son. Certainly there. The larger narrative in which Israelite freedom will lead to Egyptian salvation as the Egyptians are included in the line of the redeemed. We could mention the ongoing war between the seed and the serpent, starting all the way back in Genesis. The seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman and so on. But many of us still find this a little troubling. I want to remind you that uh, the point I ended uh, the last sermon with, again, was two weeks ago. That God's patient, patience precedes his judgment. And God had been so patient with the nation of Egypt. If you remember well, it was Joseph... In God's ordained plan, and through a pretty difficult uh, trying a couple decades for Joseph, he's the one that ended up in Egypt, was able to interpret the king's dream, really brought salvation to Egypt through preparing for the uh, coming famine. His family came to live with him there in the time of famine. They began to reproduce 
uh, got so large that Pharaoh started getting scared. And then to recap just shortly, um, Pharaoh was so nervous about their growing numbers that he began killing off, uh, trying to kill off their babies, eventually killing off the toddler boys. And then God sent Moses with a message for Pharaoh that it is time to let the people of Israel go. And you remember, uh, again, plague after plague. There's nine that precedes this. Not all of them called plagues, all of them wonders of God, certainly, for the point of God saying again and again and again that I'm going to do this so that you will know that I am the Lord. So for 400 years and then plague after plague and warning after warning, finally we see the wrath of God's going to come. And even then there's going to be a way of salvation. And we will see again a familiar theme in Scripture of the sacrifice of the Lamb. This isn't the first time that we've seen the lamb appear, and it's certainly not the last. We begin to see the lamb as a major role player in God's redemptive story. As a matter of fact, the narrative arc of the Bible follows in some way the sacrificial lamb as the controlling idea. A controlling idea is something that screenwriters and authors and playwrights use to tell a story. It's the, it's the theme, the idea they keep coming back to, the, that they weave from the beginning uh, through the conflict, through the resolution, all the way to the end. The controlling idea of the Bible is this idea of the lamb. Maybe say, uh, to say it more properly, it's the words of John the Baptist when he first sees Jesus in John chapter 1. You remember this? That he sees him and shouts out, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And it's through that lens that I'd like to look at this passage on a deeper level. And I can assure you we won't get to everything here but under two headings, the offering of the lamb and the beholding of the lamb. First, the offering of the lamb. As I said just a moment ago, God had called Pharaoh to release the Hebrews. He refuses. The plagues come. They get increasingly worse. And then we have this last one. And you know how, it's, how it ends. Let me read it to you in verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. And take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of this house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. When he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. It's a unique word that he uses there, the destroyer. If you read the whole passage, it says a couple times that uh, Yahweh God is going to be the one that's going to pass over. And here it uses a term to describe him as the destroyer. And what we see is a small glimpse of what ultimately Revelation talks a lot about. This is a temporary, preliminary judgment day that is coming. And it's crazy as you read it. Through all the defenses of the greatest military known to mankind, to Pharaoh with all his military might and his magical arts, his growing military, his godlike persona, all of this could do nothing to stop what is to come. There was only one way to be saved. And it had nothing to do with tanks, and it had nothing to do with armies. Only one way to be saved. Only one thing that will protect you. 
a lamb. Shelves could be filled with books on the significance of Passover and probably have been. And in a number of ways, the Passover is an obvious prelude to the work of Christ. It's about redemption from slavery by the blood of the lamb. But not just any lamb. In this passage, it, maybe you caught the specifics as we read it. And I want to look at those and I want to see how, uh, how those things point eventually to Christ. First, the substitute for death had to be pure. They were to select a lamb, a male, a year old. It means that the lamb was entering the prime of his life. He was to be without blemish. What do we see and have in Christ who is called the lamb of God? Obviously a male. He's in his early 30s, we figure, entering the prime of his life. The New Testament makes it clear, the book of Hebrews, that he was without blemish. There was no fault in him. He was like us in every way except without sin. He was a pure and spotless lamb. The lamb had to be personal. Every family had to do this. Verse 3 says, a lamb for every household. The animal would have to be in your home for several days. Your kids would likely have named it. If you don't think that's true, just give your kid a puppy and take it away in four days. Much less have to sacrifice it in the backyard. You can imagine. You can imagine like the stingingness of this, right? Glad Ellie's not in here. We would've, Ellie would have just cried the rest of the service. It would have stung. Just because your neighbor had a lamb or your uncle had a lamb, that didn't matter very much. Every family had to get their lamb. And notice the increasingness, uh, the increasing effectiveness of how this points to Christ. We could go all the way back to Abel and talk about uh, he sacrificed a lamb to God. And that was one lamb for one person. And here we have a lamb for a whole family. Soon the sacrificial system would be developed and there would be a lamb sacrifice for all the people of Israel on the Day of Atonement. Again, that's still a foreshadowing as Jesus was the perfect lamb of God and he would die for the sins of the whole world. It had to be pure and personal. It had to be killed. Again, this was a bloody holiday. We see in verses 22 and 23 that there were basins of blood. Now, most of us, unless we're dissecting something or in the medical field, don't deal with blood very well. We'd rather not deal with it, of course. But in an agrarian society, you can't escape blood, the raising of animals, killing of animals, sacrificing of animals. But even for them, this is bloody. Having bowls of blood. Take these branches from the hyssop plant and Rub the blood all over the side of your house. This was a bloody and messy holiday. But then it was to be burned with fire. God made the distinction that you shouldn't boil it or eat it raw. I've never seen raw lamb and some sushi bar. I don't know who gets into that kind of thing. But he was saying not boiled, not eaten. Throughout the Bible we see that fire was a sign of God's wrath. God's wrath will be poured out either on your family or on the lamb. We could go deeper into that, probably don't have time today. It had to be applied. Killing the lamb was just not enough. Very specific direction was given that 
it be applied with a hyssop branch to the doorframe of every house. And then after you applied it, you weren't to come back out. You could certainly smell it in the air. When you walked out the next morning, certainly its stain would still be there. Verse 13, God says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Think about this. Do you recall what Jesus drank on the cross when he said, I thirst? Do you remember? It's in John's gospel. Jesus on the cross and someone down below and they took a sponge full of sour wine and they lifted it up to him on a hyssop branch. They applied the hyssop branch to his mouth. Surely there's a deliberate connection in these two as John is connecting the dots. Through those men lifting up the branch, they may not have realized it. With verse 22, it says, take a bunch of hyssop. We read again about the hyssop branch in Psalms 51. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it into the blood that's in the basin. Even the very plant used to spread the Passover blood on the doorpost was the same lifted to Christ on the cross to give him a drink. Because he was thirsty, the connections could not be clearer. It's to be completely devoured. This is about unity. Entire households ate the entire lamb with none of its bones broken and none left over for the morning. There was no laissez-faire attitude about the instructions on this. Eat the entire thing. Burn what's ever left. Direct instructions to do this together. Now, of course, this is not alluding to the fact that a father's salvation in some way grants his child salvation, but salvation most time comes by way of family discipleship. We can't ensure our kids' salvation, certainly, but we can set the sails, set the environment for God's wind to blow, that he would open their minds and their hearts to the truth to the sacrifice of Jesus on their behalf, to the seriousness of their sin, something I plead over my kids every night. Just the other day, Hudson asked me after we prayed, he's like, Dad, what do you, if you know Hudson, he says this all the time, like just a grumpy old man, what do you mean? I prayed for him and he said, Dad, what does that mean? Praying for my salvation. I think this also speaks to the whole life nature of following Jesus. Completely devoured, it says. We don't get just to take part of him, to sample his forgiveness, but ignore his call to carry our cross. One commentator says it this way, the idea behind eating it all was you had to take it all then. Not store up some of the rescue for later. It was for right then and right now and you had to receive it all without thinking you could take a bit and then come back to it later as you please. We take all of Jesus, not just the parts that please us. Finally, it had to be done in faith. This meal is actually happening before the deliverance. They're doing all of this upon the promise of God they have not yet seen. Think about this. There's no one alive in the nation of Israel at this point that had ever tasted freedom. All they had ever known was slavery, and all they had never known, ever known was this increasing oppression by the uh, nation of Egypt, by the most powerful 
man on the earth, Pharaoh himself. Now they had seen, it's been a crazy time. There's been crazy things happening with the plagues, with other things. But God instructs them to do this and they do it. This meal is actually happening again before they taste freedom. They're eating in faith. This is about the power of faith worked out through obedience. Israelite families were not saved by their personal godliness that they that night or even by the amount of confidence that they had that God was going to do what he had said. Say on this night that there are two neighbors, Hebrew neighbors, and one Hebrew neighbor confesses to the other that he's real nervous about this. Man, I just don't know what to think about this. Um, I'm just worried about this whole thing, and I, I just don't know how this is going to go. And the other neighbor says, well, well, did you apply the door to did you apply the blood to your doorpost? And he said, well, yeah, I did it. And I did it a second time just, just to make sure. But, but I'm still real nervous about it. And the other Hebrew neighbor would say, well, I'm not nervous about it. I've, I'm confident that God is going to come through. One of them doesn't sleep very well that night. The other one, of course, sleeps soundly. Which household will be spared the death of the firstborn son? The answer is both. It wasn't about their confidence necessarily and how this would all go. It was about the blood on the doorposts. They were saved simply by the fact that the blood was over their house, not how much faith they had in exactly how it would work. Of course, their faith was warranted. It happened exactly as God said it would. Read with me in verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn, sorry, verse 29, and struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt. For there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Such a strange phrase there at the end. I guess through the movies that I've seen about this and the animation, for some reason I always thought it was these were going to be kids that had died, the firstborn, but it had no, uh, no age range. It was the firstborn. If you were a firstborn and you didn't have blood over your house, that night you would taste the wrath of God. We're going to cover some of that next week, but the point is, is pretty clear. Something in every household had to die as payment for sin. Either the firstborn son or the lamb. Again, we see this offering of the lamb as the controlling idea. When John the Baptist sees Jesus for the first time, he proclaims, Behold, 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I want to talk just a moment of what, did it, what, what might it mean for us to really behold the Lamb. The offering of the Lamb is pretty clear. We see how it connects to Jesus. I think there's no churchgoer likely in this room that doesn't understand in some sort of way that salvation is purchased through the death of Jesus. That the wrath of God against us because of our sin, that God is holy and just. And because he's just and because he's holy, then someone has to pay for sin. Someone has to pay for our sin. And we understand that, that someone has to pay for sin. Imagine we brought someone in here who, or you read about in the paper, someone who had create, uh, committed these egregious acts. He's a, a serial rapist and murderer. And he is standing trial, and a very forgiving judge just decides that he's going to let him go, and he's not going to pay for all of the injustice that he's done. But you see, someone still has to pay. You let someone like that go, who's going to pay? It's going to be the, the victims that he's abused and their family members. It's going to be society at large. They're going to pay thinking, man, somebody's out here. He's going to commit these crimes again. Someone's got to pay. And that's the point of the Passover lamb at this point. We see someone has to pay either the lamb or the son. Well, John the Baptist points to that the lamb is the Son, the very Son of God, who God the Father in a lovingly way would give his own Son to take the wrath of God on our behalf. When John the Baptist is saying that, to behold means to think about it, to take it in, to look at it, to, to fixate on it for a minute. Behold the Lamb of God, you can almost hear him saying it. What does it mean for us to behold the Lamb? So a few things I want to give us as a way of application. Again, we could talk so much more about this, and we're going to tie it together with communion in just a minute. Well, first, it means that we would realize our desperate need for salvation. You know, many of the Egyptians also followed God's rule and put the blood on their doorposts. And because of that, in the next coming chapters, we're going to see that they leave with Israel out of Egypt. When we look at the uh, list of the redeemed that Isaiah mentions, we see the uh, nation of Egypt is represented there because they decided to obey the commands of God. We behold the Lamb by realizing our desperate need for salvation. Because of our sin, again, we deserve the wrath of God to destroy our lives. And our only hope is that there would be a substitute that could absorb the wrath of God on our behalf, and that substitute is Christ. We have to realize our desperate need for salvation. And we live in an age, a very religious age, that thinks that salvation comes by some sort of transaction, like an like a ATM. You punch in the right code, you say the right prayer. That's, in, in essence, us claiming the blood of Jesus over our lives, but... Jesus is going to give it much more context than that. It's just not, a, it's not an incantation of some sort where you say a certain prayer and magically you're granted 
salvation and eternal life in heaven. Salvation comes when we give our whole life to Jesus. He would speak about salvation in the form or the phrase of discipleship. He would say, no one is fit to be my disciple if he puts his hand to the plow and looks back. He would say, if you would like to be my disciple, you have to take up your cross, a symbol of death, and follow me. We can't claim the salvation of Jesus and still work to claim it on our own, to achieve it on our own. We behold the Lamb, as John said, by realizing our desperate need for salvation. But it's more than that. We, we behold the Lamb by living a life of worship and trust. You see these two things at the very end of the passage? Look in verse 27 with me. Verse 26. And when your children say to you, what, does, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. We see at the end of our passage two things under the heading of how do we, under the question, how do we behold the Lamb, we live a life of worship and trust. They worship, verse 27, it actually says, after they heard the words of Moses and Aaron, that they bowed and worshiped. And then they listened in verse 28. That's what it is. You've got the cross and the gospel and forgiveness and salvation and justification by faith alone, and your sins are forgiven, you're cleansed, you're free, but now what? What's our response we have it in these two things. Worship says, I submit, I agree, I cooperate, I give thanks, I rejoice. It's as much the condition of the heart as it is the activity of your hands. And verse 28, it says, then the people of Israel went and did so. They did as they were told. If you want this Christ to be your Christ, if you want to be his people, if this Passover, you have the blood over the door of your heart, this tells us to repent and obey and rejoice and live a life of trust by doing what God has asked us to do. To be honest, much of the Christian life is spent trusting Jesus now and understanding him later. Trusting him now and understanding him later. Later, maybe later on in this life, or maybe in the life that is to come. Jesus typically doesn't feel necessary to explain on the front end why he's doing something the way he's doing it. We know that God is understanding and patient with our confusion and even our deep wrestling or our grief. But ultimately, he wants us to put our trust in him, not grumbling and complaining or questioning and unbelief, Philippians 2 tells us. God's ways are not our ways, Isaiah 55 says. His purpose for bringing or not bringing certain things to pass often extend far beyond us, maybe even generations beyond us. So during those times where we don't understand what God's doing exactly, 
as the one neighbor is losing sleep, but he's following in obedience God's plan. We have to trust what God is doing. We need to remember in those times, Jesus' words to Peter, the very night of the Last Supper, he tells Peter, what I'm doing you don't understand now, but afterwards you will. And let's bring this to communion. The reason the Lord instituted the Passover was so that the people of Israel would always remember and proclaim their redemption for Egypt, from Egypt. In verse 14 it says, This day shall be for you a memorial day. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord through your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Then in verse 25 to 27, And when you come to the land that I will give you as he has promised, you shall keep the service. And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? You will say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Egypt, of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. Part of the Seder meal that the Jews even walk through today the oldest gentleman in the house, spiritual authority of the home, would start this process of eating the herbs and the bread, the wine, the lamb. At some point, the youngest in the house will ask, as a prompt, him and his mom, they've been training for this as they gather for this formal meal, and he'll say, Papa, why is this night different than every other night? And his dad or grandfather that would be in the room would begin to explain about their people being delivered from slavery in Egypt thousands of years ago. So fast forward from Exodus 12 to the Lord's Supper in the upper room. The Lord's Supper was instituted for the very same reason. As those men gathered and ate the bread and bitter herbs and drank the wine, they certainly noticed quickly that someone had messed up, probably Peter. Someone forgot the lamb. Where's the lamb? 1 Corinthians gives us insight into this. Verse 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, Paul says, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Again, these disciples had been a part of this meal for as long as they could ever remember. They knew how it went. They knew how it was supposed to go, and we see Jesus making a paradigm shift. Instead of them eating the lamb and remembering it as it passed through the fire, and as they look forward to one day a Messiah coming, Jesus is saying the reason that there's no lamb is because I am that lamb. This is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant.
in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Old Testament Israel looked back to the Exodus through the Passover. Through the Passover meal and they remembered God's salvation. The New Testament Israel, that's us, looks back to the cross and resurrection of Jesus through the Lord's Supper. We call communion. As often as we eat this Passover meal, the new Passover meal, we remember the greater exodus. Colossians 1.13 describes it this way. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Amen. I'll pray for us. And if you would just pray silently as I pray aloud. One of the drawbacks of having communion every week is if you're not careful that it, it becomes uh, ritualistic or stale even, that you don't remember all that you're doing in that moment. And so I, I want us to remember as a faith family, as we prepare our minds and hearts, that when we take the bread, the unleavened bread, it draws our minds back to a God who had had a plan for salvation from the very beginning. But more than that, that salvation came to us through the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ who came not because it just brought joy to the Father, but he came to purchase our salvation by way of his own death. And as he hung on the cross, he was condemned so that we could be accepted. He was killed so that we might have life. And as we dip that bread into the cup, we remember the blood that Jesus shed for us. I'm going to give you some time just where you're at to examine your own heart. If there's any sin that remains, unconfessed sin, that you would deal with that here. First John tells us if you confess your sin, God is faithful and just to forgive it. Maybe you're here this morning and you just feel like you've been on the outside looking in. You didn't understand all of this or what it means to be part of God's family. I'd love to talk to you. I pray today would be a day that you would step across the line of faith and give your heart and life to him. God, I pray over um, your people or your church, your bride, the very ones to whom you gave your life for. And I pray today with a little more somber feel, I pray that we would remember well the sacrifice you made for us. But it wouldn't be just a somber feeling that we would also know and look forward to the day 
when we hear the trumpet blow. Your word says the dead in Christ will rise first and that those that remain will meet you in the air. That there will be another feast, one to replace the Passover. It would be the culmination of the Passover, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And as we longingly wait for that day, the restoration of all things, Lord, may we, like these Hebrews, may we worship and may we trust you in all things. It's in your mighty name that we pray, amen.